So what else did you get up to? Did you watch any TV or anything? Yes, but it was like old people TV. (laughs) (laughs) What's old people TV? So we still watch Law & Order SVU. Yeah. (laughs) I used to watch NCIS. Yes. For the longest time. (laughs) You know it's old people TV when the commercials are like for AARP. Yes. And all the different drugs. Yes, exactly. So for anyone in our audience who happens to watch The Law and Orders still, there's a brand new one out called Law and Order Organized Crime in which Elliot Stabler, who was like one of the OGs on Law and Order SVU, but left the show a long time ago. Christopher Maloney is the name of the actor. Anyway, there was a crossover event. Oh, no. To like promote the new one order but i have to say this crossover is frustrating in a way because man i kind of think law and order organized crime might actually be a decent show like i think we're gonna have to watch it (laughs) so now i have to watch them both you're just sucked in (laughs) i'm sucked in welcome to the viola centric podcast we are two curious violists exploring the art of connection through conversations with each other and our friends I'm Stephanie Knudsen. And I'm Liz O'Hara Starr. And we're both professional freelance musicians living in the D.C. metro area. By the way, I don't know if this is true for all network TV, but I feel like SVU has had, I think they are a reflection of the collective like losing of the mind over the last year because the storylines have gotten so insane. And they're already a little bit. Exactly. Would that really happen? Yes. And so this year in particular, every week I've been like, is it just me or is this like extra crazy? When else? Do you have like creative license to do something like completely out of bounds than when we're in a pandemic? <laughs> exactly. Everything's shut down. It's like feels like end of days. So they're probably just like, what the hell? Aliens come down yes. and they abduct the detectives. Here's the evidence. <laughs> look at this forensics. Exactly. I did catch up on This Is Us. I love This Is Us. Like the tearjerkers. Oh, yeah. And the... Was it the most recent? For anybody who watches This Is Us, it was an episode that was a Nikki episode. You know, he was a Vietnam War vet and he was isolated for a long time. And it had like 60s references, you know, like the moon landing and stuff. And I'm very, I find myself feeling very nostalgic for that period of time, which I shouldn't be because I wasn't alive. But you know how you find yourself like tied to periods in history? Yeah. But then if you think about all the bad things that were happening during that period of time, it's like, hmm. Yeah. I think the music that was going on in the 60s was epic, like popular music. I mean, the rock bands and the concerts and all of that stuff. I just think that was there was a renaissance of like uber creativity going on. And I would love to be a part of that scene. I think that would have been awesome. I don't know. I feel drawn to it, you know, kind of like my mother. She's super drawn to British history, especially the period of the Tudors. Like she's just sort of obsessive about it. Do you have any periods of history like that you're like particularly drawn to? No, I wouldn't say so. What about like music? Do you have like a bedtime period of music that you're like, oh my God. I mean, I love 80s popular music, but yes, I was actually alive during that time. So <laughs> I don't have to be nostalgic for it. That's true. <laughs> I don't know if that counts. And if nostalgic for a period means that you want to go back to it, there is no way I want to go back to the 80s. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> I would not want to relive those years. I'm okay. So you're playing this week. 
I am. I'm excited. Get to join the section at the Kennedy Center in the Opera House. They're doing a recorded program, a couple of recorded programs. And they are being very, very cautious about COVID. In fact, everybody had to get tested. So I had to go get tested last week. And they're just being so conscientious. And it makes me feel very safe. It's been over a year since they've performed together. Wow. So I'm excited to be a part of that. That's going to be really fun. Such a wonderful group. Such a lovely, lovely group of people. Shout out to Amy Baumgarten. I talked to her the other day. Amy is the principal cellist. She's wonderful. Hi, Amy. Yeah, she's fantastic. And she was just saying how she was listening. And oh, great. It made me feel so good. Yeah. I've been loving just connecting with people through this. I've had conversations with people who I normally wouldn't really talk to that much. But you know how podcasts are. When you listen to podcasts, you're like, that host is like my best friend. <laughs> <laughs> They're talking to me. We're all talking together. <laughs> I definitely have podcasts like that. Yeah. And so I think that people just feel like they know you a little bit more. Yeah. Especially as we're talking about things that are very deep in our hearts. Yes. And um, true to our lives. And I think a lot of people that resonates with them. And so it's fun to feel connected with people on a different level. Yeah. Before having a podcast, you would have to have like an individual conversation with someone. And that's just one person. But just think, we're having these conversations, but we're talking to, you know, however many hundreds of people yeah. each time. That's interesting to think about for sure. I like the idea of maybe we're encouraging our friends and those of us who are listening to feel more comfortable with these conversations. Mm -hmm. Normalize it a little bit more. Definitely. Just being real. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably what it comes down to more than anything else. Yeah. Well, speaking of being real, we got to talk to Jennifer Wade on this episode. Yeah. This was a really lovely conversation. You know, Jennifer's um, a life coach. She's also a violinist. And she's a real close friend of Liz's. And I feel closer to her now, too. Yay. Here's another example of talking to someone about these issues that we are all dealing with. It just brings you closer and it gives you another way to relate more deeply to another human being. And she has such a calming presence yes. that she's very, very easy to talk to. And she's non-judgmental. Completely. And very open. And uh, she's just a lovely person. I'm so glad that... I was able to introduce the two of you, and I'm so glad that we're able to have a platform that we can share her perspectives with the world, theoretically, you know, whoever wants to listen. There's a wisdom about Jennifer that I don't know that I know anyone else who has. Yeah, she's something. <laughs> yeah. She's the creator and owner of LifeScape Visionary which it is in the genre of life coaching, but she references this idea of being a values-based identity coach because her main drive is to help people sort out for themselves who they are based on what they consider to be the most important values that they want to live their lives. And she does such a great job of guiding you in that way. So yeah, the perspectives are just so fascinating. Yeah. So enjoy this conversation with Jennifer. She's a real gem. And if you can't get enough of her, you can find her on her website, lifescapevisionary.com. And she has her own podcast. Yes. 
It's called The Identity Seeker. So check that out. Without further ado, here is Jennifer. I'm so excited to have this conversation. Me too. Me too. Little nervous, but <laughs> you don't need to be nervous. This is going to be so much fun. We're just going to like talk like we always do, except we don't have margaritas in our hands. <laughs> That's okay. I can still function without a margarita. <laughs> Glad that one of us can. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Jennifer Wade is my dear friend, and she is the owner creator of Lifescape Visionary. It's so interesting how timing works because the last episode, Tiffany and I both referenced that we've worked with coaches before. And Jennifer was slash is my coach. Jennifer is a violinist here in the area as well, and she ran a youth orchestra and chamber music program and would hire me occasionally to be a coach. So we met on that level and then became friends. Business ventures took us in similar directions. And when I have shared before this path that I've had and moments in my life where I've really hit kind of a breaking point, so to speak, Jennifer has been able to really help me through the a lot of that and I think it was October of 2017 does that sound right I think so I had a particular array of things going on that were really wearing me down I was burnt out I felt like I was lacking direction and I didn't know what my career was I had had another audition that was not successful and I went to her and I said you know I think I could use some direction I think I could use some coaching because I don't know what I want out of my career. And we did six sessions together yeah. over the course of maybe about two months or so. Very quickly, it became evident that me going, I just need to know what to do with my job was surface level sort of stuff, yes. right? Isn't it always? <laughs> right? So true. So that was my foray into the world of exploring identity in the unique way that Jennifer does it. And I just cannot explain how grateful I am for our friendship and for oh, knowing you. Likewise. Oh my gosh, it's been such an important part of my life. I would be curious if you feel like sharing what it's like on your end when someone even even more so when someone who you're friends with comes to you and says, I could use some life coaching. Can you help me out with that? It's like <laughs> rub my hands together good. <laughs> it's so great. Because I think there's already a connection and a bond. And so there's already insight into the person. And because there's mutual respect, you know, you don't have to take that time to establish all that, which is, of course, so important when you're working with anyone. You've got to have rapport. You've got to have trust. But when it comes to working with a dear friend, it's an honor. It's a little bit of extra pressure. <laughs> you care so much. You have a relationship outside of the coaching relationship. So you want to be careful and tread lightly. But Liz, I mean, it was it was a joy for me, too, because we were talking about the musical world. And of course, we both have that overlap. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking about the struggles as a musician, I fully understand. And, you know, that's not going to be the case with every coaching client. Sometimes they're in a, they're looking for something completely different. So in this way, I felt like, okay, this is right up my alley. I know what we're talking about. I know the struggles and I know you. So you ran with it. And I just, I just watched you go to that deeper place without any hesitation. And it was, it was wonderful. It was really beautiful to watch. Mm. Oh, thank you. Well, I would love to know how a 
freelance violinist who's also teaching gets into life coaching. What path led you there that you just felt so drawn that you knew you had to start it? It's something that I am only guessing at my answer because I think it just was all these little crumbs along the way that eventually brought me to that place. But I remember first hearing about life coaching when I was in my very early 20s, like right after graduating. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I have always been drawn to one-on-one conversations with people. And I remember, this is a little cheesy, but it's really true. I remember when I was 15 or 16, I'm, I'm not a good diary keeper, but I would go through little periods of time where I would write you know, for a couple months in a diary. And I remembered writing at that time that I really enjoyed being a mirror for people mm-hmm. because I didn't think that they could always see themselves and often the beauty that they hold. And I really enjoyed trying to be that mirror for them. And so I felt that even at that really young age, and it's always been the greatest joy for me to interact with people one-on-one. So when it came to teaching, that was kind of the closest professional avenue I had for any sort of relationship of that coaching variety, although obviously we were very focused on music. But when you're working with somebody for years and years, that's something that as private teachers, we kind of have that luxury of building a years-long relationship with students. And I would see them as more than just the little, you know, student, the private student working on their pieces. I would see them and care about them as a much more complete whole person. Mm. But I was feeling limited in that I'm being paid to work with them in the musical realm, but I connect with them and I want to be available to them in such a, a much bigger way. And then eventually just these seeds of thought and I found my own mentors and my own coaches and eventually it all came together after a kind of a big life moment, a challenge in my life when I really had to reevaluate everything. Mm. I came back to this idea of I'm ready for this. This is something that I've been growing into for my whole life. I adore music, but it has never been the be all end all for me. It's more about how you experience life. And I want to help other people do that. So I took the plunge. It scared me to death. Mm. But here we are. And I couldn't be happier with that decision. Wow. How wonderful that you were able to make that pivot. And it felt so natural for you. Yeah, it was scary. Oh, yeah. I found myself coming from a background of wanting to be very analytical. You know, I just wanted to be respected. And for some reason, I had this belief that life coaching was a little woo-woo and out there and people wouldn't respect me if they knew that I was trying to do this. But I kind of didn't care. <laughs> so I just pushed through and I it's become so much more common now. I think the idea of having a coach is far more accepted. Mm-hmm. But it's still scary. But you can come from that place of, I had these fears and I worked through them. Right. And I can be an example to my clients who are scared about making these big changes. Right. And what better way to learn something than from someone who has done it? That's the hope. Absolutely. Yeah. When I first learned that you had created Lifescape Visionary, I had no concept of life coaching. So when I saw that you were doing this and I read about what you were doing, I'm an advocate for therapy. I just want to be very clear about this. Yeah, me too. (laughs) But at that time in my life, I didn't necessarily feel like therapy was something I wanted or needed. But I thought life coaching, man, this is real life practical. Here's things that aren't working for me. And someone can kind of talk me through it without it becoming this very heavy deep dive into my psyche. I remember we talked about this and I asked you, what does your business look like? And you're like, oh, I have a lot of clients 
like in Australia because yeah. Australians are big into life coaching. It's true. Australians and Kiwis <laughs> are very open to it. It just made so much sense for me. And the things that have stuck with me three years later, and I'm going, hmm, I wonder if it wouldn't hurt to like go back in and revisit some of the values that I came up with, revise my vision statement for my life. These things that we think about with work. And maybe that's one of the things that's so hard about being a musician. Absolutely. And identifying yourself versus identifying what you're doing in work because it's so entwined. It's so twisted up together. Yeah, that's actually one of the things that I hope at one point to have the opportunity to explore this with musicians especially because I think so many of us think of our instrument as our identity. Like literally, if we were to take the fact that we play this instrument, if some, God forbid, some bad thing happened and you were unable to have that relationship with your instrument in the same way, we know there are instances where people are devastated, where it's hard to come back from that. And it's because it is so tied up in the stories that we have about ourselves and our our sense of value and worth. So that's a big one. Yeah, I think that's why it's so hard for us to feel like individuals when we are playing in a larger ensemble, because we are just a viola. And it's hard to think of yourself as something bigger and as having other things to contribute. Absolutely. How do we remain individuals in a larger ensemble? This is an excellent question, because I think it is such a real challenge. I mean, We're trained as a section player to blend, to support the overall, and especially as an inner voice. I mean, I know as a second violinist and as a violist, there's this sense of filling in the gaps that you're not necessarily, in certain cases, not meant to be prominent. So you're meant to kind of play a supportive role in that sense. Mm -hmm. So for me, the thing that I always come back to, like I changed my life coach title into a values-based identity coach, because for me, the way that works is I tap into my values and the things that matter to me and always, always operating from that place, that priority, because your values can adapt to any situation that you're in. So for example, one of the things I value tremendously is connection. So I can connect very differently when I'm one-on-one with someone versus when I'm in a section or versus when I'm trying to connect with an entire audience. And I can still feel like it's me connecting. I don't have to lose myself, but I am connecting with a different energy. So that's a way that I can use one of my values to still feel like it's me, but it can adapt to the scenario. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's possible pretty much with most any value to feel like you're very grounded in yourself. And then knowing that even though you are supporting a larger goal or a larger purpose, your voice is still essential to that. And I know we're talking about larger ensembles, but I have thought about this for years in quartet playing. Mm. Oh, I didn't mention this, that Jennifer and I currently, we play in the Ninth Street Quartet together. And so we've been playing in a string quartet and performing together for the last several years. Jennifer happily identifies herself as a second violinist. Yes. So we have that connection with her, by the way, in the inner voice world, Yes, which is why you reference 
reference that, so I just wanted to throw that in there. so true. So in string quartet playing, I often feel, and maybe this is just a story I'm telling myself, but I definitely have bought into the idea that sometimes a second violin, the part can feel not unnecessary, but it's there, but you don't really know that it's the most important thing. Like even a viola, I think it has a voice, and maybe I'm, again, maybe I'm just making this up in my head, but I have certainly heard students say, and I have myself wondered, you know, if the second violin part wasn't there, would something really be lost? What is it really adding? But then when you actually take it away, mm-hmm. and I remember we did this in a quartet rehearsal where I, you asked me to go out and listen to the balance for something, and all of you, and I, oh, wow, something significant is not present. Right. And we couldn't have put our fingers on it, but something is really blatantly missing. And even though you might not appreciate it in that moment, when you take it away, suddenly the dynamic is wildly different. And so I think the same thing is true even in a larger ensemble and in it within a section. You are bringing your own energy you're bringing your own sound, your own experience, your own history. And even though it's not necessarily something you can articulate, it changes. If you were to put in a different person in that scenario, the vibe would be different. The voice of the section would be different. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to understand that even though you might not feel it distinct, you are bringing something of beauty and unique value to that circumstance, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I love that. I've been exploring this concept since we've been really digging into it with these conversations we've been having in the last few episodes. And I was just talking with a friend about this yesterday. And Jennifer, what you said, I think is very similar. He referenced a choir and how if you had one person on each part, sing the part, and then you multiplied their voice, there would be just sort of a singular feel to it. And even though the choir, the voices are trying to blend together, every person's voice is so unique. Mm-hmm. Theoretically, should be the same in orchestra. It's really interesting when you take that into the context of you know, a regional orchestra job where the musicians change on a concert-by-concert basis how much of the internal struggle that we have when we go sit in that section and we say, okay, I'm here, I'm filling in, it's my job to like blend with this group. I've been experimenting a little bit with what little work I've had with this idea that maybe that doesn't need to be the way you feel. Maybe you can feel like I've been asked for this job. I have a certain something about the way I play and that's going to contribute. And just, it's like this very sort of little shift that I am having trouble putting my finger on, if that makes sense. I don't think it's a little shift at all. I think it's a huge shift. To me, it sounds like what you're saying, and I feel like I identify with this, is that when you are hired to come into a section, there's this sort of default setting in our mind that we have to blend with what's already been established. So we have to mold ourselves into this external idea. But what ideally should be happening in every job, in every rehearsal, is that everybody is finding their level together. So there is no external thing that you're matching to. It's created in that moment by the people who are there. Love it. To me, that's a pretty big difference. If we're just assuming that we have to change ourselves to something that's already in place, that's already inviting the sense of losing ourselves. I wonder if that's a thing that's unique to string players. Because imagine yourself as a trombonist or whatever, and you're coming into a much smaller section, and there's no avoiding that you have a different sound than the person on first trombone or whatever. And so it's a much more collaborative effort of blending 
Mm. But string players, maybe one person is new from a whole section of 12 violins. Yeah, that's so interesting because when you're talking about it, Stephanie, I was thinking, I wonder if it feels more like chamber music back there. Yep. I do know that in assistant type settings back there, that's probably the hardest job to sit in. That's different. Yeah. Your job is not to have an identity. (laughs) Yeah. Is this mind blowing or what? You sit there and sometimes your job is to pick up sections from a movement because the principal has a lot of work to do in that concert and they don't want to blow their chops out. So you have to play them. You have to act as them for like an entire movement or they are holding a long note after a huge solo and that note continues into a section and you have to basically like take it over so they can stop which blows my mind. I'm like, so you have to basically sound identical to this. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. I love it in a way. Me too. Because I love that idea of trying to meld the sound in such a way that it sounds like one person playing the same thing. But it's also like everything that's wrong with the way my brain works. That makes my head want to explode, honestly. <laughs> and this goes deeper into being your authentic self, right? Our goal is to speak our truths and be authentic and just be who we are. And to think about having to shoehorn yourself into, I have to sound exactly like this other person, especially if you can't delineate your instrument from yourself. Mm. (laughs) And then to have to be forced into that box. Whoa, (laughs) that must really mess with you. Yeah, I think there's a lot of room to lose yourself in that. I think it's so fair to point that out. I also think that not necessarily always is, but there can be a flip side. Forgive me for going back to this, but I think it depends on what that person's values are. One of the reasons I adore being a second violinist is because I love the challenge of matching, Mm. of trying to quote unquote, lose myself. Mm -hmm. I actually find that as stimulating and enjoying because on some weird way, that is part of connection. That's like empathy in a way, musical empathy. For sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. To think, okay, I know how you're creating this. I feel it. And I'm going to I'm going to respond by going with it. I'm going to match you. I just made this sort of connection in my head that musical empathy is exciting and wonderful, but there's a point when it can become unhealthy. Like if you don't have your own defined sound in any situation, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. And in the same way that empathy in the real world is this beautiful thing. It can also take you over. and can get people into trouble. Exactly. Yes. I totally feel that because I find it exhilarating too to be able to morph myself into certain situations. But before pandemic times, I don't know that I knew what my unique voice was. Yes. Do you feel like you know it now? Yes. I feel like I'm a little closer in making decisions that feel right for me. That's fantastic. And so now it's a lovely challenge to be like, okay, well, if I was playing this myself, I might do this, I might take time here. But I do love the challenge of putting myself in those situations where I have to be a certain way. I love it. Me too. But I do think that knowing where that line is, for example, there might be certain jobs in the freelance world where there's a conductor who's just known for interpreting things in one way that really is a little grating, maybe, to you personally. No, never. (laughs) I've never had that experience my whole life. Never happens, right? (laughs) 
But, you know, when somebody calls for that job, there's the immediate like, oh, yes, I'm free. I'm going to take it. But if you discover that the forcing yourself into that particular person's perception is just really going against kind of your musical integrity, once or twice, maybe that's fine. But perhaps speaking from experience, I might have said, you know what, I'm not sure that I really need to take that job if I have the luxury of not really financially needing it. And I I don't know, maybe that sounds a little like high maintenance, but at some point, if you're bending too far, if it feels like it's really going against your own sensibilities, I think it's fair to say, okay, enough is enough. There's a line. I'm not going to cross it. I love this. Okay. So as freelance musicians, often when you start off in a new area, you're networking, you're saying yes to everything. Then there comes a time when you don't have to. You can say no to certain things. But that instinct that you start with as a freelancer is very, very strong. So how do you set your goals and your standards for your gig life so that it makes it very clear what you can say yes to and what you can say no to? So if you had a client who was like me or Liz, <laughs> how would you advise them? I maybe have had a little experience. Yeah, with I this know. Which sounds very familiar, actually. As I shared, I went in to do these coaching sessions with Jennifer with this mindset that I was burnt out and exhausted, and I felt like I was working towards some goal that seemed to never present itself. And I felt like I didn't know where to take the time. And as I'm saying this out loud, I'm realizing that this is still. You said it recently. I literally said this yesterday everyone. Yeah. It's very challenging work. So I think this is going to be really fantastic information. But I just wanted to share from the perspective of the person who was going in there. I didn't even know how to articulate why I felt all of these things, because we're so in it from that yes, no standpoint, when we start that getting ourselves out is really is a challenge. This is like big stuff, right? So one of the ways that I would have anyone start, and I think we did this with you too, Liz, is figure out what kinds of things energize you and what kinds of things drain you. And you have to be willing to actually check in with how you feel physically, because we might say in our mind, oh, this is good for me, therefore it energizes me. Not necessarily the case, or it's good for my career, therefore it energizes me. But that might be a little bit of a sort of distorted story. So really going in and knowing, oh, playing with this group is always so energizing. I feel like we've really made music or playing in this venue or playing this specific piece of music. You know, knowing the things that leave you feeling like, oh, that was such a great job. Man, I love what I do. Versus the ones that are like, oh my God, I just spent two hours and I'm angry and I'm frustrated. Actually taking some time to evaluate as you're doing it even better. You know, you can look back on your past experiences and get a clue about how you feel, but actually being aware enough to say, okay, this isn't fulfilling me. If I don't have to have this paycheck, do I really need to be here? Could I be energized or fulfilled by using my time in a different way? So just starting off with that. And then, especially for those things that are pretty draining, maybe it's not even that the jobs themselves are draining, but I know, Liz, this was something we talked about, the like commute back and forth, driving all over, so many services and just making it all happen and the stress of getting there. Mm -hmm. I find that incredibly stressful when I only have a narrow window of time to get from a service to a service. So I can only tolerate it for like one weekend. 
a month, maybe, you know? And so if you begin to understand how much you can actually tolerate, how much is healthy for you, then you can start setting out your non-negotiables. And I think that's really important. Where you might say to yourself, okay, I can go all in for like, three weekends, I can go insane, I can hustle, hustle, hustle. But then that fourth weekend, come hell or high water, I'm not going to do anything. Even if that sweet ass job comes in, you're going to be so tempted. I know, I know. But just to say, for my own well being, that's not the only amazing opportunity I'm ever going to have. I can let this one go because I'm taking care of myself. I drew a line, and I'm going to respect my own line. We ask other people to respect our boundaries. We need to respect our own boundaries. That's really important. Yeah. This part of the process, the non-negotiables. I struggled with this the most back then. And I did this thing where I was like, I won't work more than four weekends in a row. I tried that. This is why I describe it as kind of like the freelance lifestyle can feed the monster. Yeah. I don't know if you'll remember this, Stephanie. You, me, Sasha are standing together on a break on a job in 2019. Mm -hmm. And I said to you girls, I was like, I am feeling crazy burnout. I think it was May. I told myself that I wasn't going to work more than four weekends in a row, no matter what. And I have totally let that go. And both of you were like, you like give yourself weekends off. (laughs) Like that's the reaction. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And I was like, well, I did. I tried and I couldn't. That's literally what I was saying was like, I wanted to, but I can't in this time period. It's funny to think about that now, right? Because what do I mean I can't? What does that mean? That's a mindset. Yeah. It's absolutely a mindset. Those are the hard things to change. Yeah. So you can make all these external changes, but if you haven't changed your mindset, God knows I struggle with this too, that you get caught back in the loop. That's incredibly normal. Mm -hmm. Right. When I ask people to come up with non-negotiables, like it's actually okay to qualify them to say, this is absolutely not acceptable unless my dream opportunity comes in. And of course, there's room for that. But then if you know that you are making that exception, then you also prepare for making sure that you are taking care of yourself, especially thoughtfully you know, around that time. So if you're having to tolerate more than you were originally expecting in terms of stress or work, whatever it might be, then you actually have a plan in place for how to support yourself so that it's not just do, 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 and oh, I'll figure this out later. They have to go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. At least I think that's the ideal. Yeah. What I'm hearing is that in order to prepare ourselves for when work comes back and we have to make these decisions, you have set up a plan for yourself like these things are important to me. These are my non-negotiables. What other kind of questions should we ask ourselves before we jump back in? I think it's important to look at costs, like when we accept a job and also the costs when we refuse a job. Mm. As musicians, as freelancers especially, we think of the cost of not taking a job is losing that money and losing the potential networking connections, right? And those are real concerns. Those are valid. But that's it. That's where the list stops. And we don't maybe as easily consider the cost is maybe spending more time away from my family or that I am creating more stress for myself in terms of the commute or physical stress, right? Like if I am trying to set up a six service weekend and, I, and I'm debating whether or not to take on that last gig, I've got the time, but maybe that weekend is really physically demanding and maybe you're going to do yourself a fair amount of harm or at least... Certainly, you're going to feel it by the end of the weekend if you put yourself in that situation. So that's a physical cost. 
And I know that sometimes we do think about that, but that's usually an afterthought. So if when we're looking at when to take a job or when not to take a job, I think it's important to look at the bigger picture. What are the bigger benefits in terms of how you're going to feel that energy that we were talking about earlier? Mm-hmm. And then what are the costs? It's not just a financial thing. It's not just that networking opportunity. If you've established yourself, it's okay to do one or two jobs off. It's okay. You're not going to suddenly plummet to the bottom of the call list, we hope. <laughs> Does that make sense? That makes complete sense. I think it's a question of giving equal weight to those costs. Right. The big one, I think, that we evaluate first and foremost and most rigidly is how it will affect our standing in the line of who's getting called for the job. And that puts the autonomy in somebody else's hands. It's something that's out of our control and it's our way of trying to maintain some idea of control in the situation by saying, if I just keep doing all the work, I get to stay there. I get to stay in this spot. As we're talking about it, it's hitting me in a way physically that I'm like, that's the thing. Yep. Which is totally fear-based, totally Mm fear-driven. Exactly. And it's understandable. Oh my gosh, I'm not at all suggesting that there isn't some grain of truth in that and that it's a visceral thing to think about losing that. It's hard. But, and I think this was mentioned in the last episode, I think Tiffany talked about this, the idea of abundance versus scarcity. Yes. And I think it's so important to practice, even if it doesn't feel good, even if it doesn't feel true. Again, so many of the stories we tell don't always accurately reflect reality. Right. So if we just practice just that little step of saying, okay, I can give up this one job and I'm not going to lose my reputation. That is a way to take one tiny step toward, or if it doesn't even feel like you're moving toward abundance, at least you're moving away from scarcity. If we don't take those little steps and learn to trust and and trust our own resourcefulness. Yeah. I mean, as entrepreneurs, we're all able to create opportunities for ourselves. So if we don't practice that trust in the fact that there are opportunities that we can create some of those opportunities even, then we'll always be living in that fear space and we'll run ourselves down. Yeah. It sounds a lot like desensitization training. Yeah. Where so theoretically, if you're afraid, you have a phobia of snakes, you know, you start with looking at pictures of snakes, then you go to a reptile house and you observe the snakes from behind glass. And then maybe eventually you'll get to a point where you can be around a non-threatening, a non-poisonous snake. So as musicians, as freelancers, we practice the idea of saying no before the actual saying of no. (laughs) Right. I love it. (laughs) Right. Pretend I have the so-and-so contractor has sent me an email or has called me on the phone and I've reserved that weekend. Just put yourself through the scenario, theoretically saying no to this contractor. Okay, so what did that bring up for me? Oh my gosh, I felt this pit in my stomach. Okay, that's fear. Yeah, right. Acknowledging it. But I love this idea of practicing the no before you actually have to use the no. It's powerful. Yeah. Of all the things that have been hard about this year, most of us have the luxury of time to practice before we have to do it. Mm -hmm. I kind of want to dig at one point here a little bit, which is where the fear is coming from. I know that there are going to be musicians listening to this who will say, well, I did start saying no to jobs. And I stopped getting called for jobs. Right. I think that to take this a step further, and Jennifer, I know this is where I think you really like to get in the rubbing the hands together in a good way. (laughs) 
what are the potential positive outcomes of certain jobs not being available to you anymore, even if you feel that, you know, this is an opportunity that's been taken away. I think what I'm kind of hinting at is this idea that we may not, we may not be getting the calls that we want to get. We may not win the job we want to win. So it makes room for something else for us. It's not that then we're left with nothing. It's that we're left with space to figure out what is more aligned with us. And so what would you say to that? It's a great question. And it's big. And I think it's very true. A couple things come to mind. First and foremost, this idea of being more thoughtful about what you say yes to and what you say no to or encouraging you to say no. It's not that the idea is to lessen your amount of work. It's just to overall improve the quality and your enjoyment and what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I don't want it to seem like I'm asking you to reduce your world because that's not the case. I'm asking you to be thoughtful so that what you are doing is just what you want to be doing instead of what you feel obligated to do or forced to do out of fear. So to answer your question more specifically, Liz, if somebody has found themselves in the situation where they've said no, and then the jobs are disappearing, then the question I think becomes, again, what is it that you want from work? Is it that you want to be super busy? Is it that you want to play as much rep as you can and be everywhere? I mean, some people are energized by that to an extent. And if losing that suddenly feels like you are missing out on something essential in your life, well, then maybe there needs to be a reevaluation. I think you have to explore what it is you want from your jobs. But in terms of, let's say you have said no, or you've tried these auditions, you thought you really wanted to play with an orchestra full time and it's just not happening and that circumstance is kind of being forced on you how do you deal with that and I think again forgive me but values play a role in everything so if you can go back and do some reflection for yourself about what it is that makes you feel enthusiastic in your life whether that be music based or other and I keep going back to the idea of connection because Mm -hmm. I love that so do we yeah I know (laughs) I've noticed (laughs) So obviously connection through music means one thing to me, but I can connect musically in so many different ways. I can do it through teaching. I can do it through quartet playing. I can do it through a recital series. I could do it through playing in an orchestra. So if I need that sense of connection, then I can get creative. Even if one door has been closed for me, I can be led by the value to create new opportunities. Mm. And then, and this is again very individual based, for me, music has always been and needs to be a very, very big part of my life. But more than ever before, it is not the entirety of my life. And I create connection now in other ways. I'm looking for that same feeling, the same sense of enthusiasm and joy, but I can see that it's not limited to just that musical field. So that might be true for some people and very not true for others. Some people, music is the thing, and that's wonderful. Music is such a huge arena, right? And if we limit ourselves with this idea of it has to be this one way, if we're so rigid, we're totally out of control. Something else dictates it. You have to know yourself. You have to know what lights you up and what you want and be open to finding that in multiple ways. That's perfect. Thank you. It feels a lot like what we've done here. We're looking for connection without even being aware that it was a value, but realizing you can find it in other ways besides sitting in that job. I think this is actually a good way to segue into a couple of things I also wanted to reference that you have done recently outside of music. Jennifer recently published a seven-week gratitude workbook, and it's a do-it-at-home process. My husband and I actually both did it together. For me, it truly 
truly has helped change my mindset. It's not always easy and it is a practice. So I just want to preface that. And, you know, we had Robin on our podcast and she referenced her practicing of gratitude every day and that it's not always that she wakes up happy and grateful in the morning, but that she practices it. And it's shifted even the most seemingly complicated and difficult situation I'm dealing with in my life to one that presents opportunity. I can't say enough wonderful things about the experience. Thank you. That warms my heart to no end. I'm so grateful that you and your husband went through it and that it has actually been really meaningful. That's so good to hear. So thank you for that. Gratitude is one of my absolute top values and it has been. And even though some values have shifted over the years, that one has remained rock solid. And I I have this sneaking suspicion it will be for the rest of my life. I just know in my core that it changes my experience of absolutely everything. So I say in the course that it's like wearing a pair of glasses. It doesn't change the world, but it changes how you see everything for the better. And like you said, Liz, it's not always easy. It's something that you have to practice, something that you cultivate over time. I just remember I had played a job and I just was feeling so lucky to be able to play this music. And I posted something on Facebook and a lot of people responded like, oh man, you're really putting me to shame. Like, oh, that was such a long slog. And I just remember that kind of made me look and think about the mentality that sometimes we bring to jobs. And I've been there myself. If you can shift into that place of gratitude, it just changes your experience. Instead of feeling gross and like you cannot wait for it to be over, it allows you to be a little bit more present and calmer. And so I think of gratitude also as a big step way toward that abundant mindset. So if everything that comes to you is a gift and it's not something that you're entitled to if you can be grateful that you've crossed paths with this opportunity it's just a more receptive place it feels better it just literally feels better physically and emotionally so I have tried to use that through every experience of my life whether that's with people that are difficult and that's probably where I struggle the most (laughs) so when people are grating on me it's hard for me to think oh, I'm grateful for this opportunity to practice being patient. (laughs) (laughs) It's difficult. But I really wanted to share this practice, this shift, and it's a profound shift internally. During probably the most difficult time in my life, I just felt utterly shattered and I needed something to hold on to, some sort of practice. And I was meditating at the time and I was reading, I was was in therapy at the time, but I just wanted something grounding, some little ritual that I could do every day. And that's when my practice really blossomed into the seeds of what it is now. And I had been looking online for ways to actually establish a, a practice that are concrete to like build a habit takes time and it takes attention. It takes accountability to follow through with it. So I wanted to create a course or an experience that would walk people through all these possible ways of experiencing gratitude, of shifting your mindset, of connecting with something really beautiful and making sure that it was done in a way that you're set up to succeed beyond the seven weeks, to plant roots that can continue to grow and will have a long-term effect on your life. So that's what I tried to do. And I expect I'll keep refining it over time. It was really important to me to do that. For anyone who's curious about looking into this and thinking, oh boy, building a practice, that sounds like a lot of work. Actually, I want to say it's no more than 20 minutes a day, but it's really not even 20 minutes a day. Yeah. 
Jennifer has little things throughout this that you can hold yourself accountable and you have little ways to track it. So there are guided meditations, there are journaling exercises, reflections, and then there are habit builders. And my favorite one is my morning ritual to start my day with an intention of gratitude. It's amazing just how starting that way sets the tone for the rest of the day. So even when the day is hard, if you're interested in this, and have any concerns about the time from your friendly violocentric overscheduler, <laughs> I can tell you that it is not a massive demand on your time. It never felt overwhelming, not once. It really felt like the right amount. And the shift was very organic. It wasn't like I had this aha moment. It's just that I started to feel happier over the course of the weeks. I'm so glad. It's been really great. So I cannot recommend it more. And I and I really think that your point, Jennifer, about how a mindset of gratitude can help shift you from the feeling of scarcity to abundance. It's big. And in our lives, Stephanie and I, as highly active freelancers, you know, we really are trying to dig into these concepts. And so having something actionable in your own life that's an internal shift, it makes a huge, huge difference. For those of you listening that are interested in this process and knowing that Jennifer is a values-based identity coach who is a musician, who has had these experiences, she had resources for me for jobs. So in real time, I had a little prompt and it asked me to evaluate the various things that drained my energy and the various things that gave me energy. It's very interesting. I know for sure that there's that Jennifer would be happy to work with musicians. Absolutely. Oh, and now, so tell us about this workshop that's coming up. So it's from April 23rd through the 25th, just three sessions. And I call it flipping the script. The idea is taking the opportunity to really explore the stories we tell ourselves, especially around blocks in our life. If there's a goal that we haven't achieved, something that's really important, or whether that be a mindset or something specific, if you have tried and you're feeling blocked, the chances are there's some story that you're telling yourself, some limiting belief, like you're in a rut there and you, you're not able to kind of nudge yourself out of it. So this workshop shows you a process to start exploring your beliefs, the stories that you're telling yourself, and to eventually kind of nudge into setting a new story, creating a new picture, a new idea for yourself, and then giving you some steps to start you down that path. I'm kind of excited. I talk about creativity. <laughs> the way that we're doing this builds on storyboarding, which is the technique that directors will use before they shoot a film. And it helps them kind of visualize the story and get all the details in mind before they actually get on location. We are going to use that framework and talking about backstory. And there was a prequel. What would that look like? Playing with this idea because it, number one, takes you out of being the one living the story. So what this is designed to do is to just separate you a little bit so that you can look at it as an observer. And it activates the creative part of your brain where your creativity starts saying, oh, well, how can, how can I redo this? How can I reset this? And it's a process that you can use in most any blocked area of your life to help you kind of get out of that rut and move forward again. So I'm, I'm really excited to share that with people. That's great. So if people want to find your gratitude workbook, or they want to register for your class, go to lifescapevisionary.com. It's all one word. The workshop, you can see a link to it right on the homepage. For the gratitude work, you just look under the online courses, and it's all there on my website. Oh, fantastic. I know that I'm really interested in starting the gratitude journey. Yay. There's a lot to be grateful for. And sometimes it's hard to see that. Yeah. And if this past year has taught us anything is that even in the darkest, 
just shadows, there is light. Yes. And there is some silver lining, not to mix too many metaphors, which I'm kind of known for. <laughs> but there's something there that you can grab onto. And I would like to think most of us have found at least one or two of those things over this past year. Oh, I think so. Absolutely. I love your metaphors, Stephanie. <laughs> and I'm a big mixer too. I get it. I love it. I'm right there yeah, with you. That's right. <laughs> I couldn't say that better about gratitude, Stephanie. And when it comes to this upcoming workshop, I will for sure be there. And it's on Zoom. So you can do it from anywhere in the world, theoretically. Jennifer, the way you described it, I can't help but think like there couldn't be a more perfect description of envisioning these things we're talking about in terms of where do we want to go from here with our jobs? Um, How do we practice the no? And visualizing it. I mean, that's part of what this is all about is getting it a really clear idea in your mind. So it's not just this vague sense of, I think I want it to be more like this. Holding that vision, getting detailed about it as if you were a director of a film, like, what do you want this to look like? And then moving forward with that. Yeah. I feel really inspired. And I think our, our listeners will too just giving us so many things to chew on. That is my favorite. (laughs) Yeah, because that's what you need. Yes. I have been so blessed to chew on your perspectives for the last decade of my life over so many conversations and to have a platform to be able to share you with other people. I mean, there's so much in this episode that is thought provoking, but if you want to take it a step further, she's here. I am. I am here and I'm ready, eager. But I also want to say that I'm so grateful, first of all, to be asked, thank you for bringing me onto the program, but also for the work that you're doing, because I think for the longest time, I have felt like these are all the unspoken conversations that are happening in our community, to bring them to light and to be able to speak about them more freely and just acknowledge that these are conversations we're all having kind of behind closed doors so why not just put it out there and this is so important i'm so glad you're doing this thank you thank you thank you so much for listening to the viola centric podcast if you enjoy what you're hearing and would like to support us please consider a contribution through the paypal or venmo links in our episode notes once again i'm liz o'hara star and i'm stephanie knutson We release new episodes every other Monday, so please subscribe so you don't miss one. In the meantime, connect with us on Facebook and on Instagram and email us at violacentric at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening.